Welcome everyone to the Rest Podcast, where our goal is to help each and every one of you displace confusion, chaos, and dis-ease in order to heal and find significance in life. I am your host, Natalie Williams, and I am here with the author of The Reconstitution Method for Healing and Rest, Virginia Dixon. So James, I am so thankful to have you on the podcast with me this morning. First of all, you came on my feed out of nowhere. And I loved what you had to say. So anyway, welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be here, Virginia. Your book, The Alcohol Freedom Formula for Entrepreneurs and Business Professionals, when I read the title of your book and I heard you speak, I thought, no, this is for everybody, right? I know you had to have a target and you you wrote your book with that in mind, but your message has a broad range of applications. So I wanted everyone to hear your story. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm an Australian American and I grew up in an Australian culture where drinking was just the norm. And in fact, I would have described myself as a socially acceptable drinker in that I had a couple drinks per night at the end of the day. I thought that it was relieving my stress and anxiety. And then on to, you know, towards the latter part of the week, maybe like Thursday, and then the weekend, Friday and Saturday night, I would drink heavier. I wasn't so much getting drunk or waking up in a gutter or doing anything that crazy, but I was just a consistent drinker, you know, at least a couple drinks a night. Again, not getting drunk too often, not getting into too much trouble. But then I got into my mid-30s and I woke up one morning and I looked in the mirror and I just felt blah. And I realized and recognized that my drinking habits had got me feeling blah. And I was probably about 25 pounds heavier than what I wanted to be. I wasn't sleeping great. My skin looked weathered. I wasn't being as productive. There were often days where I would drag myself out of bed and I didn't have much energy. And so I would probably describe myself as being like a five or a six out of 10 compared to what I knew my potential was. And so in 2010, I committed to taking a 30-day break from alcohol. And in 30 days, I lost 13 pounds. My skin improved. I landed my dream job at the time, which was hosting Sports Center on ESPN, which is one of the most iconic sports TV programs. I attracted a higher caliber of friend into my life. My productivity improved. And I thought, wow, this feels pretty good. I might push this out to 50 days and see how I go. And then I felt great. And I said, I wonder if I can do three months. And I just kept pushing it out, pushing it, pushing it. And I got to one year alcohol free. And I actually went and ordered a Budweiser, a Bud Light from a bar in uh, Austin, Texas. And as I was putting it to my mouth, something inside of me just stopped me. And I just thought to myself, wow, in one year, I've accomplished all of these incredible professional achievements. I'm healthier than I've ever been. I look great. My friends have changed. I'm sleeping terrific. Why would I go back to this? So I put the beer down and I literally have not had one sip of alcohol since 2010. So that's 12 years now. Transformative, isn't it? It really is transformative. I just came from a doctor's conference where we talked about the healing power of energy. And we're not going to get sidetracked by that. But I was so thankful that you were my first podcast conversation at the tail end of an experience like that. Because people do not understand 
that as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. The, the transformation was emotional, spiritual, and physical. These things have consequences, and we don't have time to talk about what happens in the quantum field and the consequences of the decisions that you made, but they are significant. It's really changed your entire constitution. And by the way, it would cause you to pause when you picked up that beer. Was it energetically? Your body was saying, uh, I don't think I want that. And you had to negotiate between your will and the things that took you there. You know, the community conversation, just meeting friends at a bar or whatever. And what your body was saying was, uh-uh. Literally, energetically, it was not wanting it. I believe so. I, I believe it. It was an energetic force or it was energy in alignment is probably a better right. way of saying it. And what you, were, what you were picking up was going to disrupt a rhythm that you had developed, a rhythm, a conversation within your own organism. It's fascinating. I, I test, I measure, I see, I show people the consequence of what I'm saying, but I love hearing it in the context of your story. Mm, thank you. Uh, it's interesting because it was probably two energies. It was the energy that was was giving me pause that was saying, oh, hang on, this energy maybe isn't in alignment. And then there was the energy of keep going. You're in momentum. Keep going That's with right. the alcohol-free lifestyle, I mean. That's I don't right. mean keep going with drinking the beer. I mean keep going with this energy and this lifestyle that you have created for yourself. And so I chose to keep going. And, you know, it's 12 years now living the alcohol-free lifestyle. And, you know, fast forward from that point, about five years to 2015, I was living in the Hollywood Hills at the time in California. And I would get invited to many of these really fancy, glamorous Hollywood Hills parties and Golden Globes party nights and Oscar nights and MTV Movie Awards nights. And I was attending all of these events and there was open bars at all of them. And I was just drinking my soda water, ice and a piece of lime, but I was having a fabulous time and I was you know, rubbing shoulders with celebrities like uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. And they were, you know, you would think that this would be a very hedonistic kind of lifestyle where you would partake, but I just very confidently and happily drank soda water, ice, and a piece of lime. And I had a fabulous time so much that people would often say to me, how are you having such a great time not drinking alcohol? I don't get it. And I got asked this question so many times that ultimately in 2015, I started a little online program, which was called the 30 day no alcohol challenge. And I just created 30 little videos and some trainings on how to stop drinking and most importantly, how to stay stopped from drinking. And then it kind of grew from there and fast forward to today. And now, you know, I've pivoted somewhat and I, I, I help mostly executives, entrepreneurs, business owners, investors, mm -hmm. real estate brokers, mostly folks in their late 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s to fundamentally change their relationship to alcohol. And, you know, we've helped about 20,000 of that demographic now and probably wow. 100,000 plus of all demographics, I should say now, since 2015. You didn't just help them change their relationship with alcohol. You helped change their life. And I can tell you that for the last eight, 10 years now, I deal with a lot of chronic illness and a lot of addictions. 
and a lot of cancer patients. So I have clients and I have patients that are referred to me by doctors who've tried everything to help them deal with the emotional, spiritual, and physical constitution of their disease. It's not a very well-developed topic yet in wellness and healing, certainly not in allopathic medicine, but in the world of functional medicine where people have tried everything else and still they got stage four cancer. I can tell you that there is not one single patient or client that I've ever had that alcohol, drugs, well, if there's drugs, there's alcohol, but that alcohol has not impacted or touched their life developmentally in the early childhood years, parents were alcoholics. They vowed never to touch a drink, but still the consequence of the alcoholism bears witness in how they live and a lot of things that lead to chronic disease. But alcohol is at the root of every single patient that I've ever worked with or dealt with, either through them or they come from a family or home where alcohol was devastating. And isn't it interesting, Virginia, that we refer to alcohol and drugs as drugs and alcohol as opposed to just drugs because alcohol is a drug. In fact, alcohol causes the most damage than any drug. My daughter has said that for many years and it's so socially acceptable, but expound on that. I'm sorry to cut you off, but people know this. Yeah. Just a few things to note. The American Cancer Association recommended in 2021, they updated their recommendations and they said that they recommend zero alcohol consumption if you want to reduce your chances of cancer. A study came out in March of this year in 2022, and they did a study uh, of thousands of participants in the UK. Mm-hmm. And what they found is that even a modest drinker, and that's defined by one drink per night, so seven standard drinks per week, is enough to cause brain damage. It's oh, enough yeah. to destroy white and gray matter in the in the the frontal. I think it's called the the neocortex in the front part of your brain. Your yes. frontal poles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the white and gray cell matter destroyed. Wow. From just one seemingly innocent drink per night. And so if you're listening to this or watching this, how many standard drinks do you have per week? Is it seven? Because in social terms, that's a very modest drinker, but it's still causing some level of brain dysfunction and brain damage. But we glorify this thing that we call alcohol. To me, alcohol is nothing more than attractively packaged poison. Mm -hmm. We stick it in a fancy bottle like champagne bottles, for example, and we make them gold and we give them fancy names and we put a cork on it. And then we associate that attractively packaged poison with celebration, like a wedding or an anniversary or sporting team winning the championship or extravagance. And then we put other poison in another fancy bottle and we call it tequila and vodka and these gorgeous bottles, and we've got this fantastic branding and colors and sexy names. 
And everyone who's offering you this attractively packaged poison is doing it with a smile on their face. Inside of my coaching, we call those people smiling assassins yeah. because everyone's smiling at you as they offer you this attractively packaged poison. And people might be listening to this and go, oh, geez, lighten up, James. Come on. It's no, no, big deal. no I think it's accurate. Mm-hmm. What's a big deal? I only drink. I only drink on weekends. Well, okay. How much are you drinking on weekends? And again, if it's only on average one drink a night, you are still doing damage. So what we coach is you can have an amazing time and connect and relax and be social without the attractively packaged poison. And that's how people truly live an alcohol-free lifestyle. The misconception is that if people stop drinking, that they'll have to pull back from society, that they'll have to decline invitations for social events, that they'll somehow be dull, boring. People will turn their back on them. I offer you this, run towards social situations where there's alcohol and just choose to be alcohol free and you will have the most wonderful time and be the most engaged and be the most social, have the most fun and invite the questions from people and just very confidently with a cheeky smile on your face, just share your experience about being alcohol free. You don't have to rub it in. You don't have to be pompous. You don't have to get on your high horse and say, whoa, I'm so clever because I'm alcohol-free. Just share candidly about what your experience is like, and people will be moved, touched, and inspired by your way of being, by the fact that you're fun and confident and social without you even having to talk about it. I call these the five L's, right? Light, life, liberty, love, and law. These things are the most powerful things that cannot be pierced. And everything you just said is an incredible amount of light when a soul unencumbered shows up to anything. Because it, there's dimensions of life in the intricacies of our soul that are so beautiful when they're uninhibited by anything artificial. Certainly what you said is absolute truth. The absolute truth is poison. Love, that's a capacity to set aside what serves me well for the good of another person, right? It's when you read 1 Corinthians 13, our capacity to love is when we are able to not put ourselves first in situations. So even when your soul says to your flesh, you know, no, I know you're craving that, but we're not going to do that. I talk about that as liberty, that kind of liberty that overrides the impulses of the flesh, right? Our propensity to instinctively do something. That's that's government. That's individual self-government. That's something that is so powerful and satisfying. Wait a minute, my impulses aren't going to drive my life. The things that compel me that I value are not my reactivities, my impulses, my desires, right? And then law, there's a form of government that takes place. You know, these external things, as you so articulately reference them and address them, these external things that seduce you to comply with standards and norms right, of social situations are going to either seduce you to comply and fit in and relax and do, or something strong, this inner thing in you that says, no, 
you will not do that because that doesn't make us feel well. And people don't realize it, but these conversations happen all the time, subconsciously, right? So when you can begin to develop it, to instill some of the messages that you give, some of the topics you you discuss in these brief Instagram messages that pop up on my screen, I thought the world's got to hear this guy because you just are so practical and matter of fact, but the transaction that's really taking place is the war, the conflict between the impulses of your flesh that drive you or the things that compel you that come from your soul, your mind, your heart, your will, your conscience. One day you said, hey, you know what? Uh, I want to do some things different. But the beautiful thing is how you speak about the consequence that it had on your life and on the life of people you work with. It's amazing. Thank you. A couple things. The word alcohol actually comes from an Arabic term, alcohol. And the translation of that is body-eating spirit. Really? Get out of town. You're kidding. That's it. It's exactly what I just described, huh? That's right. When we drink this poison, it's literally a body-eating spirit. The other thing is I would invite people to reframe alcohol or reframe stopping drinking alcohol this way. Instead of saying to yourself, I should stop, I need to stop, I won't drink, I'm saying no to alcohol, reframe it and say yes to the alternative, which is I say yes to an alcohol-free lifestyle. I say yes to soda, water, ice, and a piece of lime. I say yes to mocktails. I say yes to having a great time tonight alcohol-free because the body and the mind can do things and accomplish things when you just give it a direction on what to do as opposed to asking it not to do something. If you ask your subconscious don't drink, or even if you ask your conscious don't drink, then you're focusing on the drinking and then it's more likely that you'll end up drinking. Whereas if you just focus on, I'm ordering mocktails tonight as opposed to cocktails, I'm drinking soda water ice and a piece of lime tonight i'm going to confidently go up to the bar and order myself water ice and a piece of lime some soda water with a splash of cranberry maybe a little piece of mint maybe some lemon that's what i will do then you naturally live an alcohol-free lifestyle instead of constantly having the voice in your head don't drink shouldn't drink need to stop drinking all of that is based in judgment it's based in shame and it's getting you focusing on the ineffective thing, which is alcohol. So good. In your opinion, in your estimation, I'm curious, what drives people to drinking? It's a combination of a few things. First of all, and I think the most powerful thing is cultural conditioning. So think about it. When you're a little girl or you're a little boy when we were children our parents or adults around us we would watch them drinking alcohol okay not necessarily they were drinking alcohol obsessively or excessively let's just say they just had a glass of wine at the kitchen table and what do our parents say to us oh no you can't drink alcohol one day when you're a little bit older Mm -hmm. and so they're implanting this unconscious belief 
that alcohol is a rite of passage, that alcohol is something fun and desirable that adults do. And so as a child, you're looking at that and going, oh, okay, one day I get to take that rite of passage and I get to drink this attractively packaged poison, which all, which my parents and which other adults are consuming and smiling as they drink it. And so the cultural conditioning starts when we're children. It starts at a very young age. And so then later on, now we want the drink. We're presented with the drink. It's okay to drink in front of your parents now at your 18th birthday party. It's okay to get drunk at college. It's okay to go for after work drinks with your colleagues. And now you've finally gone through that rite of passage. And so you now have a belief that alcohol equals fun, connection, family time, bonding with colleagues, relaxing. And it's very challenging from that point on to rewire the mindset that's been implanted in your brain from when you were five or six years old watching mommy and daddy drink. That's one of the main things, cultural conditioning. Okay, And that can also include marketing from these liquor companies and from the beer companies. I mean, watch the Super Bowl commercials. You've got Coors Light, Budweiser. They're fun. They're high production value. You've got the, the horses from Budweiser. You've got the dogs from Coors. You've got goofy guys having fun. George Clooney and Randy Gerber used to have a tequila company, which they sold for a billion dollars. I mean, I saw a big billboard advertising their tequila on Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood some years ago. And the, the big image, which was towering over Sunset Boulevard, was George Clooney on a motorcycle with a black leather jacket looking really cool and just a picture of this cool tequila bottle. And so the unconscious thinking there is, oh, sophisticated, cool, suave, elegant, those that kind of feeling. You drink tequila. You drink tequila. Cool. That's what cool people do. And then there's the other more damaging reason, or maybe not more damaging, but an equally damaging reason is people fundamentally aren't connected to themselves and they don't know how to process their feelings. They don't know how to be with themselves. They can't sit with themselves with all of the challenges that life brings. And so they find comfort. They find temporary comfort in drinking to numb themselves from the pain that has come from childhood or from teens or from just quite frankly, being a human being. They lack the skills. And I say they, let me just say we lack the skills because uh, you know, I'm I am a work in progress as well, but we human beings lack the necessary skills to just be with ourselves, to process the emotions that come up from relationship challenges, from work challenges, from just being a human. And so we we can't be with that tension. We can't process it in a healthy way. So we seek refuge in something that is going to numb that pain, which ultimately then creates and causes more pain. Spot on. I agree. The cultural thing is always a special interest to me. I was born in Montevideo, Uruguay, and my family is all European, Italian, French, Switzerland, Germany. And I don't remember sitting down for a meal that we didn't have wine ever. They put wine in the water for kids. And 
I never, ever understood the culture here in America. I came when I was seven years old. I'm 62. And I came in 1967. By 1979, I was so perplexed why they called parties, parties. It didn't look to me like anybody was having fun. In Uruguay, alcohol was nothing to me. It's a matter of fact, wine is very good for your health. A glass of wine, a little bit of wine, it's very good. It has medicinal properties, right? And I don't know, it wasn't anything that touched my life. I was perplexed by the entire culture here, the youth culture in America. A lot of complex things going on in that time in history as well. So I'm always interested in hearing other people comment on the culture of consumption that we have, because I was around it all the time. It was like milk, but I don't remember seeing a drunk person other than my father who had chosen to leave the country at that time because it was a political turmoil and pain. I, I remember as a child, the few people that I saw get wasted, just pain, trauma, complex political things happening and they couldn't emotionally reconcile it all. So a broken heart and a shattered soul, in my opinion, is the root of addiction. And to your point, we found ways, and these marketing geniuses found ways to associate beauty, strength, power, control, authority, freedom, and images like that to feed that fundamental problem that, in my opinion, drives addictions. But it was fascinating to hear you explain that. I do agree with you 100%. Mm. I just think there's been so much confusion, chaos, and disease in this country for the last 50, 60 years, and it's been emerging and systems have fed it, that I think the alcohol consumption is just out of control. I can't tell you how many housewives are full on alcoholics and they drink a bottle of wine a night and like no big deal, a bottle of wine a night. That's a lot of alcohol. And it started while cooking with a little glass just to relax. I'm fixing some Italian food and a little glass of wine. You know, three, four, five, six, seven months into this, they're drinking a bottle. The very thing that folks drink to relax is what's causing them stress in the first place. It's like this vicious cycle. Talk about that for a second. Well, I mean, let me tell you what is not relaxation. It's a woman sitting in a bubble bath drinking a glass of red wine with a candle going and some nice, you know, white sound or, or crashing waves sounding. I mean, she thinks that's relaxation, but she's drinking the glass of wine while she's sitting in the bath listening to the binaural beats with the candle. And so the, the glass of wine is literally just pouring toxins into the body. That's right. Now, Here's the other thing, and this is really important. I have a sleep company. I'm somewhat of a sleep expert in that I have interviewed the world's top sleep doctors and experts for about seven years now because I, I own a business that produces sleep products called Swanwick Sleep. And what I have learned, what the best doctors have shared with me, is that you are better 
drinking a glass of wine for breakfast yes. than you are any, right. anywhere close to sleep. Because when you drink those toxins, your body now goes to work to get the toxins out. And when we're sleeping, we don't want the body going to work. We want the body relaxing. We want the body chilling out. So it naturally. Because it's already. Exactly. Because the job of the body between what, 10 and 1, 2 in the morning is to do exactly that, to get the toxins out of the body. But you just increase the toxin load. Yeah, 100%. So as crazy as it sounds, you're better off having beer, wine, vodka, tequila with your cornflakes in the morning, because at least then your your body's got 16 hours to get the toxins out and go to work throughout the day. Exactly. And you can help it with movement, right? Movement, dynamic movement and conversation and all of this, at least it helps the body flush it out. This is not an invitation to drink alcohol with breakfast. (laughs) No, it's not. But that's how crazy it is. I mean, seriously, I mean, you shouldn't be eating within three hours of sleep time because your body has to digest the food. And again, your body's going to work and that's going to disrupt your sleep. But you sure as heck should not be drinking any amount of attractively packaged poison because then your sleep will be compromised. Now, people listening to this might say, well, hang on a second. I have a glass of wine just to relax me at the end of the night and I fall asleep just fine. I say to that, congratulations, you fall asleep just fine. But the quality of your sleep is going to be severely compromised, which is why for most people, even if they're quite proud of the fact that they sleep seven or eight hours, they still wake up feeling tired and lethargic and they're confused as to why. So yes, it is true that alcohol close to bedtime might actually help you to nod off and fall asleep. But the consequences of that are so great that it just completely destroys the benefit of you drinking the wine to fall asleep. And you can test this. I mean, I wear an aura ring and I track my sleep. I don't don't track alcohol, obviously, because I haven't drunk in 12 years, but I track things like how long before sleep I eat. And if I stop eating at seven and then go to sleep at 10, my sleep is far superior than if I have my last meal at 8.30 or nine and go to sleep at 10. So throw alcohol into that. And if you track it, I mean, if you're a drinker, then I invite you to track it with an aura ring or some other device and just have a look at the quality of your sleep, the duration of your sleep and how you feel in the morning when you compare drinking close to bedtime and not drinking close to bedtime. I mean, look, honestly, I don't think I'm revealing so much kind of like, oh my God, this is incredible. This is common sense. Yes. It's all common sense. But common sense is not common, Mm -mm. right? It's just not common at the moment because we are so infiltrated by marketing and cultural conditioning. And so I say to you, listening, I get it. We can make an argument. We can we can form a compelling argument that it's not your fault that you weren't aware of this. But now that you are aware of this, I invite you to, you know, just use your own common sense, do your own research. And what you'll find is that there is no amount of alcohol that is going to serve you in the short term or the long term, and that if you can learn how to have fun in social situations and rewire your brain to really love and appreciate being alcohol-free as opposed to thinking that you're going to be dull and boring, your whole life will transform. But it's you mentioned at the beginning of the call, Virginia, and thank you very much for, for complimenting me on, on saying that, you know, 
what I've done has helped transform lives. It's not just the lives of the people who stop drinking. It's the wives and the husbands and the kids and the friends and the colleagues who get inspired by the person who stopped drinking. And even if they're not inspired by it, they don't see it. Even if they don't notice it, they're still being affected by that person being a better person because they're alcohol free. Yep. We're dealing with fragments of each other if we're consuming a drink every day. If you are consuming a drink every day, you are only dealing with a part of your very soul. Just the way it is. We're showing up in parts during a very complex and difficult time. In time, look what's happening. Confusion, chaos, and dis-ease is literally driving people mad. I see it in my line of work every day. And those it's not driving mad, it's driving them to chronic illness. And the role of alcohol is just indisputable. Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable. It cannot be overstated. The holidays are coming. And I want to leave on a positive note. And I, I love how you frame this whole conversation. I appreciate how you frame the conversation. And that is in the context of, hey, we're going to see friends. We're going to be with family. We're going to be with relatives. Take this challenge, perhaps. What's a reasonable challenge you can give people understanding the difficulty that comes with quitting, with changing our habits? So a couple of things on that. Dry January and sober October are two of the most kind of well-known months where people tend to take a break from alcohol. And I applaud the mission of that, okay? However... Almost all of the people who participate in dry January and sober October are looking forward to day 30 when they get to have a celebratory drink. Mm-hmm. And almost all of them will return to some level of drinking, if not the same, sometimes worse. A small percentage will actually go, wow, this was amazing. And they'll either stay stopped from alcohol or they'll return to drinking, but at a very modest rate compared to when they joined the, the challenge. So I applaud the mission. However, statistically speaking, 90 days is a far greater chance of success in being alcohol-free long-term. If you can get over 90 days being alcohol-free, it's unlikely that you'll even want to return to any kind of level of drinking. So while a 30-day break from alcohol is a, is a great first step, I would invite you not to take that step thinking, yes, I get to finish on day 30. I would invite you to participate in a 30-day challenge thinking and feeling, wow, I wonder if I'm going to go longer or I wonder how long I can go. Let me do these 30 days. Let me try these 30 days on for size and see if this is something that I want to continue for many months, many years, and possibly decades. The problem that people face when they do these 30-day challenges is that they feel like they're in a prison Uh and they're just trying to get to day 30. That's right. And and what do all prisoners want to do? Get out. They want want to break out of prison. That's right. So you're like, oh, I'm on day 27. I just got three days to go. Oh, I can't wait to have a beer. I can't wait to have a wine. Oh, I can't wait to celebrate again. In my opinion, you're participating in that 30-day challenge in an ineffective manner because Mm -hmm. you are telling yourself and others that under normal circumstances, you would choose to drink alcohol and that not drinking alcohol, you are therefore depriving yourself of some of 
life's joys and pleasures. You're telling yourself unconsciously and consciously, and you're telling the world that we should bow down to alcohol and go, yes, it's wonderful. Can't wait to get to day 30 where I get to drink it again instead of this ridiculous 30 days where I'm sober. I dislike the word sober because I think it's ineffective because it implies that under normal circumstances, you would choose to drink, but you just can't because you're sober. (laughs) As opposed to, I invite you to run towards this 30-day challenge and look at it through a through the lens of maybe I'm going to do this for 60 days, 90 days, a year, decades. Let's see how this feels. And I'm going to love it. And I'm going to say yes to alcohol-free drinks and yes to having fun and yes to embodying what it's like to be alcohol-free. And yes, run towards the family Thanksgiving dinner, the holidays, the end of year parties at work, run towards the open bars and walk up confidently and say, I'll have a soda water ice, a piece of lime, please. Throw in some mint there and a little bit of splash of cranberry juice. And watch how nobody cares. Watch how they'll just pour it for you, give it to you and smile. And nobody will be chastising you. Why aren't you drinking? Go on, just have one. So good. I often talk as you, I don't know if you had a chance to look at our website or not, but we're about inviting people into a place of rest in order to reason and reconcile. And that word reason is really significant because at the end of the day, in its root form, that word reason, we find in the exhortation to repent, to turn. But that word repentance is so misunderstood. It's about thinking and acting in such a way that you've reasoned through why something is no longer productive. I don't know a single person that drinks in excess that can say they feel better and their life is better. Their relationships are better. Their business is thriving. I I just don't know a single person that has ever walked into my office that doesn't regret the role that alcohol, and by the way, a number of other addictions has played in diminishing the quality of their life yet yet we're all trying to hang on to it right it's a lot trying to hang on to it. oh if i stop drinking people will think i'm an alcoholic oh if i stop drinking i won't be able to go out oh if i stop drinking i'll be dull if i stop drinking i'll be lonely because a lot of people drink to overcome loneliness they're by themselves and so the bottle of wine or the beer or whatever it is is like a friend but the friend ain't that good the friend, it's a one-way relationship and it's a transactional relationship as well. It's not a real relationship. It's not a friendship. It's not a true no, it's friendship. Not. It's an all-consuming one-way relationship that is like a banquet in the grave. No, it is not. There's an amazing book written just for your benefit. It's called Drinking a Love Story. And I've recommended it to so many people. This woman was brilliant. And I thought, I've got to meet this woman. She gets rest. And she gets what I'm trying to invite people into this place of freedom. And do you know that I found out she had just died? Beautiful, young, intelligent, amazing, died in her mid-30s, late 30s, I think. What a tragic loss of a beautiful soul that just got it. But I love your exhortation. Thank you so much for making time to have this discussion. 
I just want to bless you and, and exhort you and continue to admonish your work. What you just described in great detail, when I said, what advice, what's an exhortation for people as they embark on the holidays? And I'll just put in the language of rest for those that follow me and listen to me. We've reached almost, we've reached a little over a quarter of a million people. And I'm so thankful for it. But I wanted them to understand that you described in the context of alcohol, what happens when we exercise liberty of conscience, we live free. Internal, external. We talk about these things as if they're the same thing, and they are not. You really described the relationship between the things that enslave us. In this case, our discussion is around alcohol. But those things enslave us because we're internally in bondage. We're not accustomed to thinking rightly about these things. There is no freedom without liberty, internal decisions of conscience. There is no diminishing the hold things have on us, the things that enslave us, if we don't understand the things that take us captive and the bondage we feel in our mind, our heart, our will, our conscience through unreconciled things. And you just explained so beautifully how to take on these holidays, how to take dominion over those impulses. And I just think it's beautiful and it's practical. And I just want to thank you and just give you the last word. You're welcome. And thank you so much, Virginia. The last word is I've had a life with alcohol and a life without. And without is way better. Thank you so much, James. All right, everyone, if you want to get in touch with James or learn some of his application tips, go to alcoholfreelifestyle.com. For updates about rest and this podcast, please visit our Instagram or Facebook, The Place of Rest. If you'd like more information about Virginia or to support and join the cause of rest, please go to virginiadixon.com forward slash collaborate or call 949-289-5935. Thank you for listening to Rest with Virginia Dixon. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.